You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for September 5th, 2021, the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Peter Walsh. It's based on Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. When I was a kid, I went to religious instruction uh, on weekday afternoons at the local parochial school in my town, St. Thomas Church. The classes were held in a one-story red brick building that I think had the cornerstone laid in 1961. I remember sitting uh, toward the back of the classroom. The tiles on the floor were that linoleum asbestos tile, and they were the color of Ovaltine or the color of Nessie's Quick without enough chocolate in it. And they had this brown streaks that went through the tiles that looked like the uh, streaks on a glass if you pour in her, um, Hershey's syrup and you, you don't stir it all in, so these brown streaks. And uh, at the front, they had a green blackboard that was set kind of low, uh, set for fourth graders. And then on the right side of, oh, excuse me, uh, above the blackboard, in the center, there was a crucifix. And the crucifix had a silver metal Jesus hanging on it, and Jesus was hanging on this blonde-colored wood that looked like the type of paneling that people in the 1960s would put in their basement to turn their basement into a den. On the right side of the green blackboard, there was a, 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 deep, a deep chocolate corkboard, and on the corkboard in the upper left corner, there was a poster of an airbrushed Jesus. And uh, Jesus was white and he had a reddish tint in his hair and in his beard. He was exceedingly clean uh, and the white tunic that he wore was also exceedingly clean and very well pressed. He looked like a friendly guy. He was sitting on a rock, a clean rock, and there was a kid sitting on his knees and a few other kids gathered around uh, the back side of him. Now, I have absolutely no memory of anything that was ever said to me in that classroom, but I have a great memory of these two images of Jesus, right? The, the silver metal Jesus and the airbrushed Jesus. And I think as I, I grew up, I had these two basic views of Jesus in my head. Uh, on the one hand, I had uh, the dead Jesus. Uh, I had the silver medal Jesus uh, who had won the prize of salvation for us by dying on the cross. And I had, of course, other images of Jesus as uh, a, a dead human being hanging from the cross. There was a lot of crucifixes uh, in the Catholic churches I attended as a kid. The other view of Jesus I had was really an airbrushed Jesus a perfectly boring Jesus uh, who is like the good neighbor who lives near you who you're always happy to say hi to in the morning but you never ever want to have dinner with him because he's so god-awful boring uh, and that is pretty much how I thought of Jesus for a very long time he won the victory on the cross but he was wildly boring Let's just say that the gospel that Father Justin just read is no airbrushed Jesus, right? He's not a friendly, nice guy. Uh, in fact, it's very questionable as the gospel begins whether or not he's even likable, right? He is not so welcoming to the Syrophoenician woman as he was 
to the children who were bobbing on his knee. Uh, in fact, Jesus is so insulting that it is somewhat unnerving. So let's take a look at unnerving Jesus here. So the scriptures uh, begin, as the, this passage begins, as Justin just read it to us, that Jesus has gone up into the region of Tyre. Uh, Tyre uh, is in Phoenicia, current-day Lebanon, and as you know, Tyre is a port city on the Mediterranean even today. As Jesus is entering into Gentile territory up in Tyre, he's also entering into the bitter conflict between the Hebrew people and the Gentile people, particularly in this region of Tyre. The ancient historian Josephus noted that of all the peoples who hated the Hebrew people, the people from Tyre had the greatest dislike toward the Hebrew people. Now we do not see any of that bitterness manifested uh, in the humble woman who comes in vows before Jesus, right? We see just the opposite. Now Jesus goes up into Tyre and it says that Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Uh, in typical Markan fashion, he does not explain why, but certainly we might look at the text and see that Jesus, Jesus' life is frenetic. Uh, and everywhere he goes, he has trailed and followed, even as he tries to leave people in the dust in order to get a breather. No matter what, Jesus wants to be left alone. And the scriptures continue, Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. So we have a, a, a humble woman in need bowing down before his feet. Now this woman comes uh, to Jesus with all sorts of vulnerab vulnerabilities that we, uh, all of these years later, might not easily pick up. She has, by the Hebrew world, three strikes against her, right? She is a, she is a woman in a man's world. She is a Gentile in a Hebrew worldview, which means she is worshiping the wrong God or no God at all, which in their understanding was tremendously offensive to God. And thirdly, she is a Syrophoenician. In other words, she's from the wrong race. She's a woman, she's the wrong religion, and she's from the wrong race. In fact, one of the commentators noted that Syrophoenician is not just a descriptive of her roots, it is also, was also at the time used as a derogatory term. We get none of this from the woman who is there humbly before Jesus. And to our ears, what Jesus says is rude and callous and shocking and insulting and disturbing. Jesus says to her, let the little children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Whew. So, what is Jesus saying? So in the scriptures, certainly Jesus is saying that his mission as Messiah is first to go to the people of Israel and secondly to go to the Gentiles. And he uses the slur dog to refer to this woman and to the Gentiles in general. So we can see that if there was great enmity between the people of Tyre toward the Hebrew people, there was also incredible enmity 
from the Hebrew people toward the people of Tyre. Really, what this reminds me of is what's happening in our world today in the same neighborhood between the people of the state of Israel and the people of the southern part of the state of Lebanon. Uh, in 2010, I think it was 2010, I went to the northernmost tip of the state of Israel, a kibbutz, that like a little finger sticks in to what would be the territory of Lebanon. And from this kibbutz, you look down and there is a demilitarized zone between the two countries and a gigantic barbed wire fence between them. Behind the kibbutz, there is an Israeli fort that looks something like a castle where there is no way to enter. And it's on the top of a rock outlay overlooking this area. On the other side of the fence, there looks like a suburban neighborhood with nobody home. And what is in those buildings that look like houses are cannons that are aimed toward the state of Israel that are built by the Hezbollah, the, the ruling party of southern Lebanon. And over on the right, on the far side of the fence that separates the two countries, there is a United Nations camp, a tent uh, with white flags uh, flying around. When I was in the kibbutz, the leader of the kibbutz who spoke to us, actually grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, about a half mile from where we once lived, but he had been in the state of Israel. He went for a visit and never went home. And he described with great bitterness the people of Lebanon who had invaded their kibbutz. Several years later, as many of you know, my son went to college in Lebanon and we were with one of his college friends and he brought us way into southern Lebanon and we went to a, a place that is run by the Hezbollah that venerates the war between the state of Israel and Lebanon. And this man spoke of great bitterness about the Israeli people, each side feeling fully wronged. Perhaps what is happening today is something of the context of what Jesus is walking into, the bitterness of these two peoples. In fact, one of the commentators noted that uh, the, the word dog is used 12 times in the Hebrew scriptures to refer to people from this region. Now, in response to the podcast that perhaps some of you saw all revved up, the three clergy of St. Mark's gear up for the Sunday scriptures, uh, Zuhair Swedan, who is sitting with us today, wrote an email. Many of you know Zuhair. Zuhair uh, is a Palestinian Christian who grew up in Haifa, and he wrote a word about dog to us. And this is what Zuhair said. A word about dogs in the Arab world I grew up in. A dog, kalb in Arabic, is a mangy descriptor. Dogs as we have in America, pets that are well taken care of, uh, treated by veterinarians, were non-existent in the world I grew up in. Calling someone a kalb was a derog as derogatory as it can be. Even worse, if they were called kalb ibn kalb, dog son of a dog. So uh, we get a sense from Zuhair's description that in Aramaic, there was only one word for dog, and it was the dog word that, uh, that Zuhair describes in Arabic. Though in Greek, there are two descriptors of dog, one of which is as a pet. 
And in the Greek translation we get, the dog that is described here that Jesus uses is dog as a pet. Nevertheless, Jesus calls these people dogs. Now the Syrophoenician woman takes the high road, right? But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is one of the greatest responses of all time. It's a biblical response. Her response made the Bible, right? She outdoes and outwits the Son of God. Jesus then says, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. The word that, for saying that, is in Greek logos, which means word. For saying those words, you have won the day. Now, I have never heard any sermon, I've never heard any commentator or seen any picture that can put a bow on this passage that makes everything just seem hunky-dory. The passage is unsettling, and the passage is not unsettling because of the miraculous exorcism that Jesus performs from afar. I mean, we've come to expect that of Jesus, right? Here's a guy who walks on water. He can certainly do this exorcism from afar. And the issue here is not the Syrophoenician woman, unless you hold it against her that she comes out looking amazing and godly and witty and smart and resourceful, uh, who uh, wins the day, outwits the Son of God, and saves her daughter in the end. She is a humble hero. But did you ever wonder why the Syrophoenician woman has never been sainted? She is like the Good Samaritan. She's the hated one who does the godly thing, right? We have many, many Good Shepherd churches. The most oft-used name for a hospital in the United States is Good Shepherd. We have lots of churches called St. Thomas, like the one I went to as a kid, and St. Thomas, of course, unfairly called Doubting Thomas. But we have, as I know, no churches called Church of the Syrophoenician Woman. We think of Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles, but perhaps we should think of the Syrophoenician woman as the apostle for the Gentiles, for she is the first Gentile in Mark's Gospel to ask something from Jesus, and out of this comes Jesus opening up his ministry to the Gentiles. So the real issue is not the Syrophoenician woman, and the real issue is not Jesus. The real issue is our understanding of Jesus. The real problem is the problem of the airbrushed Jesus. Many of us in our subconscious try to clean up the real Jesus. We airbrush him and pick and choose the parts of the New Testament story to put on our internal corkboard. And it is unsettling for us to contend with the real Jesus who by our eyes, all of these generations later, may be flawed by our contemporary standards. In fact, we don't know what to do with the real Jesus, so oftentimes we do not picture him. I scoured the web trying, uh, looking at pictures of, of this biblical scene, and in none of them did I get any hint that Jesus may have been wrong, offensive, or outwitted by this humble woman, right? In all of the pictures, the Syrophoenician woman is seen as humble, and Jesus is seen as the one of light uh, sharing his authority, which of course he does in the end. Now, we know that when we love somebody for the length of a whole life, 
we come to know all of their attributes, including their foibles and inadequacies, including their good days and their bad. It's all baked in one marble cake, right? And we trust and hope that Jesus loves us with all of our inadequacies. And the question remains, can we love Jesus with the fullness of who the Gospels present him to be? The truth is, we need to put down some perfect image of Jesus who is made in our own image and pick up the Jesus of the Gospels who is filled with quirky elbows and all sorts of unpleasantries. And if we can get over the fact that Jesus is just not a know-it-all good guy who wins the silver medal for us, we can see that Jesus is listening to this person and he is converted by her gentle, witty rebuke. And perhaps the humility of an imperfect Jesus is just the example that we all need today because we live in tribal times. There may not be fences between us in the United States, but we live in a country where there are all sorts of invisible fences everywhere. And disparaging comments are the lingua franca of our day, unfortunately. Language in our day is abysmal. And we all hopefully know that we are imperfect. None of us is godly to the point of perfection. And who amongst us doesn't need to be open to peoples of other tribes so that we can hear their truth and act in ways that build up the body of the fullness of the whole of humanity. Here Jesus is our model, not because he is perfect, but because he is willing to grow and to make room for everyone. There it is, for Jew and for Gentile, and as St. Paul picks it up later, everybody belongs in Christ. Find more sermons on our website at www.stmarksnewcanon.org.